This life-changing message comes to you from Church of the Harvest. It's our prayer that this message will inspire your life and bring hope to your future. Harvest, uh, if it is, if you are a guest here, uh, we thank you so much for for visiting. Uh, look, we are just uh, we're just a family of believers. We we love God, and because of that, we love people, and we serve the world as the hands and feet of Jesus. We just recognize when God brought us together that we were stronger together than we were individually, and so we have chosen to link arms to fulfill God's purposes in the earth today. How many of you know we can do more together than we can do individually, right? And so uh, we do meet throughout the week in community groups, and, and we do encourage you to be a part of a community group, but uh, we still love coming together on Sunday morning and worship the Lord, worshiping the Lord together corporately. Amen? At Harvest, as I always say, we're just a small expression of the body of Christ, and uh, whether you're here in person, you're watching online, every week we say the vision. What is the vision of Harvest? Vision is to make, grow, and equip followers of Jesus to fulfill their God-given purpose in life. And three ways we accomplish that. It's through building community, discipleship, and outreach, right? Guys, that is what we are all about. And one of our primary metrics for knowing whether or not we are fulfilling this vision is whether or not people are being touched, coming to Jesus and being touched by his love. Amen? Because if we are truly uh, being grown and equipped and trained, disciples reproduce disciples, right? And so we're going to see people coming to the Lord. And so that is our metric for determining whether or not we are fulfilling uh, that vision. Now, uh, we are currently, you know, for this past year, this, this year, for 2021, uh, we've been discussing um, our identity and our responsibility in the body of Christ. How many of you would agree that the body of Christ needs to come together more than ever before, needs to be unified, and needs to stand together strong? Yes, we have some differences we, we, you're not going to find anybody that you agree with on 100% of things, right? But if we can agree together that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father, then we need to stand together. And we need to understand who we are in Christ and what our responsibility is in the body of Christ. And trust me, if this is one of the most primary basics of being a follower of Jesus. And if we can get this down, America will be a different place. This nation will be turned upside down. And I'm going to show you what that looks like today as we, as we move on. But um, in our world today, as, as I've, I've, I've said several times this year, you know, things seem to be rapidly changing. But we are not of this world. And we live our life according to the word of God, which never changes. So everything in the world looks like sifting sand, but we do not have to be moved regardless of what happens. Regardless of what our eyes see, regardless of what our ears hear, we do not have to be moved. Amen. 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 Yes. Thank you. So we just finished a series on the Sermon on the Mount. Have you enjoyed that? Going through for uh, for a couple of months, line by line, studying the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, I learned a lot. There's a lot of lot of lot of good stuff on there in there, and and Jesus discussing in the Sermon on the Mount um, our relationship with the Father and and our relationship with with uh, other people as well. And we know that. You know, it was, it was very applicable to his followers back then, but whatever Jesus says is equally applicable to his followers today, right? And so we went through the Sermon on the Mount, and like I say, I hope that you guys enjoyed that, that line-by-line study. I really did. I hope you enjoyed it because we're going to keep going in that vein. I loved it. And so we're going we're gonna to keep moving forward. So today we are going to start a new series, and we are going to study Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians. Have you love the book of Ephesians? 
Now, um, like I said, I do intend to do a line-by-line study, but uh, today's going to be a little different. Now, uh, you can use the Wi-Fi. You can jump on to the, uh, the, the notes on the YouVersion Bible app and uh, hit hit more and hit events and you will see it should automatically pop up on your phone. Uh, I do not have a lot of notes for you to follow along with today, but you can add your own in there as well um, and, and save it. But, uh, but today, I, I, really, I, I really, before we get going in, in Ephesians chapter 1, I want you guys to have an understanding of the significance and the importance of the city of Ephesus 2,000 years ago. Guys, this was a, this was a big city. Ephesus was a big deal. And I'm gonna I'm gonna show that I'm gonna show that to you along the way. Um, I also you know in this I want you to understand as Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, I want you to understand the environment the church was in. I want you to understand where they came from, what they were established out of there in that city, and what they were experiencing in their everyday life. And and I think too it will help you to see the connection. You will see the similarities between the city of Ephesus 2,000 years ago. In our society today, we, we think, we, we tend to say, oh, things are getting worse and worse and worse, and it's never been this bad. It must be the end. Well, trust me, the world's been bad before. It, it, it's always been bad. <laughs> and you're going to see how bad it was in Ephesus. And I want you to see this because I think it's going to help you connect the dots as we move on in the upcoming weeks and months ahead. So I will tell you, um, this is going to be a little bit different. I want to dig in. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about um, Ephesus, I'm sorry, Ephesians um, as one of the New Testament books and kind of where it falls in line there and its connection to the other books. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the history of the city of Ephesus and uh, so that you, like I say, you have an understanding of that and then look at, uh, briefly at the layout of the book of Ephesus before we get going into, get going into chapter one next week. Uh, I'll also mention that um, uh, some of you know that last month Sean and I celebrated our 25th anniversary. And, uh, and we were, I actually were just talking to the Lawsons who just celebrated their 20th. We, we, I, I just, in my social media feed, memories have been coming up from five years ago. From our, and we actually, on our 20th anniversary, we got to explore the ruins of Ephesus. One of the coolest experiences of my life. And so um, I, I, want to, I want to look a little bit at that. I want to talk to you about it because I learned so much about it. And uh, I want to talk about um, the uh, culture in Ephesus. Uh, I'm going to show you a few cool pictures I took of what remains that we see in the Bible that reinforces Scripture. Uh, but first, let's talk for a minute um, about this letter. So Paul writes this letter, right, in, in the New Testament. Uh, it's, you know, um, uh, this, what do we call letters in the New Testament? Epistles, right. So Ephesians is an, is an epistle in the, uh, in the New Testament. And so Paul writes this during his first imprisonment by the Romans. He's sitting in prison, got some time on his hands. Holy Spirit leads him to reach out. And he writes this letter to, uh, to this church that he had helped found in the city of Ephesus. Now, uh, going back just a little bit, um, y'all know that Paul had a couple of different missionary journeys that are mentioned in Scripture. During his second missionary journey, he wrote his first epistles. Anybody know what his first epistles, what they believe the first epistles were? First and second Thessalonians, which is very interesting to me because first and second Thessalonians, the theme of them is coming back to the Lord. You're going, isn't this the early church? Didn't they just get started. They just got started, and he's trying to bring all the backslidden folks back to the Lord. You see it? Kind of crazy. Anyway, during his third missionary journey, he writes the book of Galatians. 
He writes the books of First and Second, or I'm sorry, they're letters, First and Second uh, Corinthians to the to the church in Corinth, Greece, and he writes the book of Romans. These books are all about spiritual maturity. Now that sounds right in the in the early church, people who were coming to Christ, right? So, as I said, Ephesians was wrote, written, written during the first, um, the first imprisonment by the Romans. And so, uh, during his second imprisonment, he writes the letters of uh, Titus and first and second Timothy. And these letters were written to, they were written to pastors. They were written to, to, uh, to church leaders. And they were very practical. It was all about personal application and such in there. And, you know, something else I thought about in this, you know how as we, you know, we went, how we went through the Bible quickly last year from beginning to end, um, you may have noticed that a lot, of the, a lot of the epistles that Paul wrote, I, I would say almost all of them actually, are generally addressing problems, there were problems in these churches, or there were problems with the person. Sometimes there were problems with the person that he was writing to. But that's generally what's going on. But the exception is the letter to the church in Ephesus. He doesn't address any issues within the church. He doesn't address any sin. And I will tell you this. The church in Ephesus, guys, they were on fire for God. They were making, growing, and equipping followers of Jesus every single day. This is what they were all about. They were exploding. They were growing in spiritual maturity. And so no problem is addressed. Now, he warns of some things because of things that were going on in Ephesus, but he does not address issues within the church. He wasn't calling them out. He wasn't calling them out on the, on the sin in, uh, in their lives like we see in other books. Um, let me show you something else interesting. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, the only, only verse from Ephesians we're going to use. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. This is the greeting. As Paul opens this letter, you would write, Dear Aunt Susie, right at the top. Here's how Paul opens it in verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Makes sense, right? He's got to send this letter by Pony Express, Right, all the way to Ephesus from Rome. And that was a long ways, guys. It was, it was quite a journey. And so he, this is how he opens the letter. Now, some of the oldest manuscripts that they've ever found of the book of Ephesians actually don't have the word Ephesus in them. It just says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are faithful in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus and I looked that up. Part of the reason for this is they, they believe that, that when it got to the church in Ephesus that they made copies of it. And they began to send it out to other churches in the region and it even went out beyond there to other countries around. And so since they were, that church in Ephesus was sending this letter to other churches, they marked out Ephesus. They, they didn't use that when they copied it, right? It was to you, the faithful in Christ Jesus. So all these copies have been found in different areas that don't have the word Ephesus in it. But um, it's interesting that the theme of the book of Ephesians is the body of Christ. It's the church. Anybody in here part of the church, the body of Christ? That is the theme. So that means that we need to study it, right? Talks about who we are. Now, um, we're also, as we look through Ephesians, we're also going to look quite a bit at the book of Colossians. Because Ephesians and Colossians are very similar books in many ways. They have some of the exact same statements and much of the same phrasing within them. And so we'll probably use them both. Now, the book of Ephesians talks a lot about 
the body of Christ. It refers to the body of Christ over and over again. Again, being the church, right? The interesting thing is the book of Colossians mentions the body of Christ, but it more refers to the head, which is who? It's Jesus, right? And so how many of you know that makes the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians work well together? The body needs the head. So, so we'll probably use those two kind of hand in hand. The book of Ephesians is made up of six chapters, and really it's divided into two sections. The first section um, of the book of Ephesians is really all about who we are in Christ. I think if I was Paul, there's no greater message I'd want to send to brand new churches, brand new believers, than who you are in Christ. Very important to know. And so it goes through and it begins to talk about who we are in Christ. It says that we are the righteous. It talks about hope. It talks about redemption. It talks about being chosen by God. It talks about eternity. It talks about eternal life. The last three chapters are about the application of that truth in our lives. And guys, sometimes as the church, we tend to go way one way or the other. We go all in deep and we leave out the practical, or we go all just practical and we leave out the deep. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about the word? And I, I think this is kind of cool that, that, that Paul divides this into two sections. So we've got the deep truth of the word we have to understand, and then we've got the practical application of that truth in our everyday, in our everyday life. And so, you know, these last three chapters goes into that application. It talks about how to be a good husband, how to be a good wife, how to be a good mother, a good father, a good employee, a good boss, uh, a good witness, how to be a witness of Jesus in the earth. The last three chapters of Ephesians talk about these things. We love going deep in the Word, but, we, but what I have found is that many people walking into the church today are just desperate to figure out what the Bible says, how to save their marriage, how to stay afloat financially, how to raise their children, what do I do? You know, it's, it's these things. And so I think it's important that, that we get into the Word and we begin to answer some of these questions. We go, Lord, you know, I, I've, got, I've got all this Word and I'm filled with the Holy Spirit and I've got this anointing, but, but Lord, how do you want that to translate into my everyday life? Because here's reality. We can get as full of the Word and in the Spirit as we want to every single day of our life. At the end of the day, you still got to go to work. And your car's going to run out of gas if you don't go fill it up. And you got to come home and discipline your kids and cook dinner, right? And you got to get along with your neighbors. And so we come to this point where we got to find that balance and go, all right, Lord, I'm seeking you. I'm in your word. I've got your presence with me. I've got the anointing of the Holy Spirit. How does that translate into all these situations in my everyday life as I walk it out? And that's what I love about Ephesians is you can go as deep, it goes deep into the word, but it comes back into simple practical application. One more thing I want to mention before I go into uh, stuff about the, the city of Ephesus. How many of you are familiar with the book of Philemon? Nobody. That's cool. We need to read the Bible. Um, Philemon... Philemon, this is another epistle. It's a letter from Paul uh, to a man, not, not, a, not a church. Uh, he does end up writing a letter to the church that Philemon was a part of, but he writes a letter to Philemon. Now, Philemon was a wealthy businessman in the city of Colossae. I looked that up several times because I said it wrong my whole life. As a matter of fact, Philemon, he's this wealthy businessman in Colossae. He, his home hosts the church in his city. Okay, he, he, the church met at Philemon's house. And so anyway, what happens? Well, one day, one of Philemon's servants runs away, takes Philemon's money, and takes off. 
goes to Rome, lives the high life until what? He runs out of money, right? He ends up making some bad decisions. Well, he already had. And gets thrown in prison. Guess who he finds himself with? Paul. That's not a divine appointment. Paul looks over and sees a servant of his good friend Philemon. What does Paul do? Paul leads him to Jesus, right? And he says, hey, you need to go back to your master. you got to go back and make things right, right? And Philemon was all in for Jesus, and he said, okay. And so what does Paul do? Paul writes a letter to Philemon, the guy's master, and says, take this, please, and give it to your master. And there was another guy that went with Philemon as well, as Philemon got out of prison and he was headed back. And Paul also gives him two more letters. Gives one to the church in Ephesus. That's where it came from, guys. He gives it to Philemon, the, the, the letter to the church in Ephesus, and the letter to the church of Colossae, which we call the book of what? Colossians. Guys, I love this stuff. It's cool, man. <laughs> I eat it up. So, so they head to they head back, and that's how the church in Ephesus gets this letter from the Apostle Paul. So some background on the city of Ephesus. As I said, guys, today it's going to be, it's going to be mainly history. I'm, I, uh, bear with me. We're going we're gonna to really dig into it next week. But um, the first thing I want to do is look at a map. Does anybody know where, Tur- where, where Ephesus is? Yeah, since I kind of said it, Turkey, yeah. I kind of worked on that a little bit. If any of you know that area, I kind of highlighted a a few cities there so you could kind of see how it was laid out. But Ephesus was established in the 10th century B.C. And it was a seaport city. Uh, It was in what today is modern-day Turkey on the Aegean Sea. Now, y'all know this is the Mediterranean, but right in between Greece and Turkey, we have the Aegean Sea. And today this city is called, does anybody know? Kusadasi. Kusadasi, Turkey. And it is a resort city. Today, there are about 120,000 people. It's, uh, it's mainly all Muslim. And uh, their main source of income is tourism. And so that very first morning when Sean and I woke up, we heard the Muslim prayer call going out over the, over the city. Um, it is a straight shot across the sea, as you can see from Greece. Uh, like I say, that's Greece, that's Turkey. It's a great straight shot across to, uh, to Greece, to, uh, to Athens. And so because of this, if you can imagine, if you can see this, if, if anybody from Rome wanted to go and trade that direction, they would come down uh, along the, the boot of Italy, they would go down between Sicily and Italy, and they would come across through the Greek Isles. They would go up into Greece, or they would go into, uh, or they would go into Turkey. But but Ephesus was a great location because it was, it was kind of the gateway to Asia for, for, uh, for Italy and for Greece. And so Ephesus becomes this larger and larger city. It was very important because of the trade routes. And so it was the perfect location for trade and for commerce. And so every day there were ships and sailors coming and going, and there were, there were travelers, and there were people on business all the time coming and going. So Hit that next picture, if you would, real quick. Um, the, yeah, next one. So that's a picture I took. I, I actually was in the Roman Amphitheater. I'll show you pictures of it in a few minutes. But this is actually the Seacoast Road. So this is the road that went right to the, to the port where the ships would come in. So anybody who came to Ephesus would walk down this little, this short road here um, into the city. 
And there were people from, if you can imagine this being a trading city, there are people from all different countries and all different walks of life. It was a hodgepodge of people. And, and it's one of the first things I noticed when we were there. Hit that next one for me real quick. This is a gate that I'm going to talk about in a few minutes. But, but I took this picture, not, not realizing this was the gate of Augustus, and I, which I, like I say, I'll talk about in a minute. But I took this picture because the first thing I noticed was two different languages right there. We have Latin and Greek right next to each other. I, I, I recognized immediately. I took two years of Latin, and Sean and I had just taken some Greek, and we were, we were sitting there looking at that and going, wow, that's kind of cool. And, and there were other languages throughout the city as well. But you see these inscriptions in different places in different languages because it was, a, it was just a hodgepodge of, of people from all different cultures and societies and walks of life. So, you can take that down. So, moving on. So, because of this, Ephesus was no small city. As a matter of fact, at at the height of its population, there were about 250,000 people. That was a quarter of a million people in an ancient city. I know that doesn't sound huge when you're thinking of L.A. or New York City today, but that was massive. That was one of the largest cities in the world. And so it's this massive city. And when we were there, um, there were different universities there that were uncovering. I believe they told us that I don't remember if it was only about a quarter or a third of Ephesus that had been uncovered so far. And obviously I told you it's at the city of Kusadasi, so it's right outside of it. Uh, the modern city is right outside of where, of where the ruins of Ephesus are. I had a, few, a couple more pictures you can look at that I took. I actually we actually saw uh, some archaeologists. There's one shot. Keep going. Hit the next one. Just do them for a couple seconds each and just, just keep on running here are the next several. Um, just, just different shots that you can see what they have uncovered from this, from this massive, uh, massive city. Um, I, I mean, it was just a thriving metropolis of business and commerce and, uh, and man, did they need it. Stop right there for just a second. I found that amazing because, guys, some of these ruins are so intricate and, and so well-preserved. Those are mosaic floors, every little tile put in place. Guys, nobody has come and tried to reconstruct that. We, we're standing on it. It's in the open weather, and you're just going, wow. I mean, 2,000 years ago, somebody laid each one of these little bitty tiles. And, you know, just, just, just kind of crazy. Are there a couple more in that set? Uh, oh, that was uh, an archway to, uh, to Medusa, of all people. The god- oh, she wasn't a goddess. She was a gorgon. That's, that's actually Medusa, if you remember with the, from Clash of the Titans with the snakes as, as hair or whatever. All right, you can, you, can, you can close that. So all that to say, this was a massive, massive, important city in, uh, in the ancient world. It was a great place to do business, but one of the things that made Ephesus so popular was the fact that the city life, it was all about pleasure. It was the city of pleasure. And one thing that really contributed to, the, the, to this was the fact that the virgin goddess Diana, uh, Diana to the Romans, uh, Artemis to the Greeks, uh, the temple to Diana was in Ephesus. And uh, guys, this temple was magnificent. As a matter of fact, I got a picture of what it's supposed to look, what they believe it looked like. Uh, it, had, it was made completely of marble. It had over 100 marble columns that held up the roof. And, uh, and it, was, it was one of the seven original wonders of the world. And if you hit the next picture... Uh, we did not go visit the ruins, and for some reason my camera focused on the tree, but that is basically, we were standing up on a hill, and that is the ruins of the temple of, uh, uh, to Diana. That's basically all that was left. You can see uh, the outline of the base. Uh, there's, you know, uh, just a couple of pieces of columns sitting there. That's basically all that's left, but that was one of the seven original wonders of the world. And so, 
Um, so in this, besides uh, talking about the Temple of Diana being so magnificent, besides the Temple of Diana, there were many other impressive structures in uh, in. In Ephesus, and I'll just show you a couple real quick. We had uh, the library. That's the picture many of you have probably seen before. Um, the, the library of, uh, of Celsus. Celsus was a Roman governor over that area. He was wealthy, and he funded this. Guys, I guarantee you, Paul lived there for two years. He was there this, in, this, in this great library. This library is well known. There's Shauna standing at the base of it. Um, you also had, as I mentioned a minute ago, you can show that other the pictures of the, the gate again real quick. You had the, this was the gate of Augustus. And I, I don't have a, a backed up shot of it. You can Google it. But I do have a shot of the back from the backside of it. And this was built for Caesar Augustus because Rome ruled this region, right? So with that in mind, you know, you've got all these, um, all these impressive structures in, uh, in Ephesus, but... The temple of Diana outranked them all in popularity by a long shot. It wasn't even close. Why is that? Well, Diana was the goddess of fertility and sexual fulfillment. Uh, This made her a bit popular. Uh, Pleasure was a god in Greek culture. And things like, you know, uh, sex outside of marriage was perfectly acceptable. And so sailors would come come into the harbor, jump off their boat, and run to the temple. Were they that religious? No. It's just that the Temple of Diana was basically a big brothel, <laughs> is what it boils down to. And so it was a very popular place to be. So every, by the way, if you read on it, they believe that every female worshiper of Diana was required to serve two years in the temple as a temple prostitute. This was the culture of one of the first churches. They actually taught that Diana would bless you and you would prosper if you would come to the temple and worship by giving in exchange for sexual favors. And they got very wealthy and became one of the seven wonders of the world. So, this is probably why in chapter 4 and 5, Paul has quite a bit to say about carnality and fornication and things like that. Um, this was common culture, and Paul wanted to make sure that these things were not seeping into the church of Jesus, right? So Paul spends quite a bit of time also talking about proper, healthy marriage relationships. Those probably didn't, were probably pretty non-existent, healthy marriage relationships, because of all these immoral things that were going on in the culture then. Uh, so all that to say, Ephesus probably would have been a bit of a difficult place to start a church. If somebody had said, hey, let's start a church in Ephesus, you'd have been like, Ephesus? And they're an easier place out in the country where we can go start a, start a church, right? Let's go to some little village, right? Sexual immorality, idolatry, they were the way of life. So Acts chapter 19 actually tells us, and you can actually turn to that if you have your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 tells us about Paul's first visit to Ephesus. And we know that when he visits, as he comes in, there is immediately this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit accompanied by signs and wonders. I mean, it was, it was awesome what God was doing just from the moment Paul entered the city of Ephesus. Before Paul ever makes it into the city, we see in Acts 19 that he, he is along the road. He's actually coming down the coast. Uh, he, um, he's traveling down, and he's just north of town when he encounters a couple of new Christians, And what does the Bible say that he does? He lays hands on them, and they begin to pray another tongue, to speak in other tongues. And Paul goes on into the city from there and begins to preach the gospel and perform miracles. And so a few verses later, if you look at Acts chapter 19, if you look at verse 11, 
here's what it says, that Paul had just arrived in Ephesus. And it says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Guys, there were a lot of distractions in Ephesus, but the Holy Spirit was moving and God was getting attention. Everybody was all about their business and about the temple, and suddenly there's a ruckus going on over here. What's, what in the world is happening? There are miracles, demons are being cast out, lives are being changed, and all of a sudden, the focus of Ephesus is beginning to change. So, what does Paul do? He stays for two years. And he establishes this church, the church of Ephesus, and the entire region is turned upside down. And the church just explodes. And, and some of the evidence I saw of that, I'll, I'll show you guys real quick. There were Christian symbols everywhere carved in marble. I mean, we saw dozens and dozens just in the areas that we were in of Christian symbols. And some of you may not know some of these. Hit the next one as well. Um, that's the, uh, a, a Greek, um, it has the Greek letters in it for, for Jesus Christ. Um, the, the first one actually had more to do with the, the ichthus, meaning Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. Um, and then also, um, the third one, they were actually, this was on the steps of the Library of Celsus, but, and I don't know if you can really see it there, but there's a menorah carved in the, in the, uh, in the stone there. And the Jews in Ephesus were coming to Jesus in droves. So the, the world was turned, the, the Ephesus was turned upside down, and there was evidence of it everywhere. You can go ahead and take that down. So thousands of people are coming to Christ, but how many of you know with thousands of people coming to Christ, there were plenty of people who were not happy? It stirred things up. And so, again, if you look in, um, well, I'll, I'll just tell you, I'm actually not going to read it right now, but, um, but we'll go to Acts 19. I'll be right around verse 24. Um, I'll show you how bad it got. Some of you know this story. But in Acts chapter 19, verse 4, a riot breaks out. Any of y'all remember that? A riot breaks out. It, was, uh, it starts with this, uh, this wealthy businessman named Demetrius. Demetrius made a name for himself by, um, by hiring uh, fine craftsmen. They would make, um, they would make idols and, um, and they would make shrines of, guess who? Artemis, Diana. So that's what he did. His, his business exploded. Everybody wanted shrines or idols of, uh, of Diana. And so he's making this, selling them. He's making a fortune. And suddenly people start following Jesus and turning away from Diana. And slowly but surely, sales are decreasing. Uh, profits were disappearing. So Acts chapter, 20, Acts chapter 19, verse 24 Demetrius is not real happy. So it says that what he actually does is he gets his employees and some other business owners from around town together, and he basically tells them that not only is our, is our, our businesses in danger, but, but we are being discredited. And says, and the, the temple to our goddess, our goddess is being dishonored. And so they end up all flying in this fit of rage, and the Bible says they run into the streets, and they all begin yelling, Artemis, the great goddess of Ephesus, God, Artemis, the, Artemis, the great goddess of Ephesus, they're running through the streets, and the crowd gets bigger and bigger, and this huge riot ensues, and the crowd finally packs into the largest place they had to gather together, which was the Roman amphitheater. And you can go ahead and put that picture up. Guys, it's massive and almost fully intact today, except there was a covering actually over the stage that was like uh, 75 feet high with, uh, with marble um, pillars holding it up. Paul wanted to go in there and speak to the crowd. His disciples said, please don't do that. They're going to kill you. And 
Paul conceded. He said, okay, all right. And so he did not go in. Uh, but, but what ends up happening is one of the um, local uh, leaders shows up, um, the city official shows up, and he, he basically talks reason to them, and he reminds them that riots will not be tolerated by Rome. You, you don't want Rome here, do you? And they're like, no, we don't want Rome here. And so he said, okay, buy some idols, go to the temple. You know? and, and the crowd disperses, and Paul leaves town. And he heads on to um, Macedonia, I think, Macedonia and Greece. But the church in Ephesus was more on fire for the Lord than ever before at that point. And they are just winning thousands to Christ. And, oh, I remember something else I wanted to mention. The, um, another thing that happened here, as, as you can imagine, the enemy is trying to stop what God is doing in the city. And so I mean, he, the enemy had such a foothold there. And, I mean, he is just being uprooted. And so... There's another famous story that from Acts chapter 19 you guys remember. How many of you remember the seven sons of Sceva? This was in that same time period. This was in the city of, of Ephesus. And so we'll look at it real quick in verse 13, Acts 19 verse 13. It says that some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So, so basically you had these Jewish exorcists who would try to cast demons out of people and they weren't having a whole lot of luck. They saw that Paul and his followers were, so they started going saying, well, we made you to come out in the name of this Jesus Paul's talking about, right? And it says, the next verse says, and the seven sons of Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. These seven sons of Sceva decided to try this. Verse 15, but the evil spirit, as they tried to do it to this man, the evil spirit answered him and said, Jesus, I know in Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit, uh, the man in whom was the evil, devil, evil spirit leapt on the man, mastered all of them, overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Kind of cool. You ever looked at the next verse? Verse 17. I'm going to switch to the New Living. It says, this became known to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. It says, oh, this became known to all the Jews and Greeks. They found out about what was going on. They saw what was going on, this movement that was started through Paul, what the church was doing. They saw the people being healed. They saw demons being cast out. They saw people who were trying to do it without being followers of Jesus. They saw what happened, and fear fell upon them all. It says, and many who believed came confessing their sin, telling their deeds. Also, many of those who practiced magic, witchcraft, sorcery, they brought their books together, their magic books, and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, of these books, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver they put up in flames in front of everybody. How many of you know that is something that happened, something that changed? How many of you, I remember dad talking about getting all his secular records and, and throwing them all in a trash bin and breaking them one day. You know, there, there comes a point, I don't know if you've been there, a place where God so radically changes your life that it's like all or nothing, man. I, I'm all in or I'm not. These folks were all in. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. In Ephesus, guys. So this is what was going on. Revival is breaking out. How many of you know we could, we could use a move of God like that today? But how many of you know it starts with you and me? It starts with being all in like they were. How many of you know we can sit around as compromising Christians and we can pray for revival all day long and nothing's going to happen until we say, Lord, I'm done with all that. I'm all in. Then you're going to see things happen. 
then this region will turn upside down. So, oh, the last thing I was going to mention there real quick. Um, also, um, I, I forgot the, the, uh, the Apostle John was there as well. I don't know if you guys realize the Apostle John ended up in Ephesus, you know, which is just off the coast of Ephesus in the Aegean Sea, the island of Patmos. I forgot about that. I had a picture of the island of Patmos, actually. Uh, but uh, we actually got to visit what they believe may have been the tomb of John. You can hit that real quick. And uh, now a lot of these, uh, there, there's a lot of Catholic sites. Catholic Church got there a long, long time ago and declared certain things to be different sites. But there is a certain amount of evidence that this may be where, where John ended up. They've uncovered a lot of things, a lot of inscriptions right here uh, that date back to that time. They believe they, they found a tomb right here around all these things, all these inscriptions that talked about the Apostle John. And they believe this may be where he ended up. The Catholic Church also teaches that, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, ended up there. Not a lot of evidence necessarily to support it. There's nothing actually found that supports it except that Jesus asked Mary to take care of his mother as his own, right? I got to believe that John did that. And so it's plausible to think that Mary may have ended up in, uh, in Ephesus. Uh, but the Catholic Church will show you a house and all kinds of things. And there, there's, no, there's no evidence of that whatsoever. But anyway, years later, so years later after all this, Paul is in prison and he's compelled by the Holy Spirit to write a letter to the book, to the book, to the city, the church in the city of Ephesus. You think he had any idea how far-reaching that letter would go? Isn't it crazy? So, back to the, the, the letter to the church in Ephesus. It's very deliberately structured. The main character of chapter 1 is God the Father. Guess who the main character of chapter 2 is? God the Son, and the main character of chapter 3 is God the Holy Spirit. Remember, as I told you, the first three chapters lay out the truth of who we are in Christ, right? So in that, Paul kind of has to start at the beginning. So that's exactly what he does. Showing that, he's showing that God is the author of the plan. Jesus the Son was always the one who would execute the plan. The Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, is the one who reveals the plan. You have the author, the executor, the revealer. Does that make sense? And really, this is what they did ever since creation. This is the way the Trinity worked. God the Father designed the plan. Jesus executed it. The Holy Spirit revealed it to creation. As a matter of fact, if you look at it, really, the Father, he wasn't even really the one that created. It was his plan. But if you look at Scripture, it shows that Jesus was the one that executed the plan. I'll show you, uh, it's, it, again, in Colossians in chapter 1, and you can turn to it or I'll just read it to you. It'll be on the screen. But in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, this is all about Jesus. It says, He, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Guys, Jesus has always lived to serve the will of the Father. The Son comes in, executes his will according to his plan, and then the Holy Spirit comes through and reveals that plan to us in creation. So, um, in looking at this, Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 deal with the plan of redemption. 
That's, that's the plan that really is discussed, right, um, in, the, in the New Testament. That's, that's the good news. So Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 deal with the plan of redemption and the building of the church of Jesus. Chapter 1 is the plan. Chapter 2 is all about Jesus going to the cross and executing the plan of redemption. And then third chapter, the third chapter, the Holy Spirit reveals the plan of redemption and draws us to the Father. So the plan is giving to the church. If you look at it, actually, if you go on then to chapter 4, it begins to talk about the giving of the plan, how it's revealed through, through the Word, but also through the fivefold offices of ministry. Uh, ministry offices, in, which is, uh, like I said, chapter 4. Overcoming sin and putting the Word to work on our everyday lives is a theme of chapter 5. And then, uh, and then you've got chapter 6, which talks about uh, victory over Satan. It talks about being an overcomer and being a witness in the world. Does this make sense? All that to say, God the Holy Spirit, this is what God the Holy Spirit was saying to the church in Ephesus. That's what we're going to look at in the coming weeks. And it is what he is saying to us as the church today. Like I said, back then, probably the idea of starting a church in Ephesus probably would have been frowned upon at first because it would have seemed laughable. It would have seemed difficult because this was a very pagan, immoral, idolatrous city. But God loves them. He loved them and he showed mercy and grace. He sends the Apostle Paul, empowered by the Holy Spirit, Walking in, proclaiming the good news, performing signs and miracles and wonders in their midst. How many of you know Ephesus was not too far gone? Just like we're never too far gone. Yes, their past was full. This church that he was writing to, their church, their past was full of idolatry and immorality. But God's love broke through and they decided they were all in. And Ephesus, because of the work begun there and the believers that bowed their knee to Jesus, much of the known world would be reached because of the faithfulness of the church in the city of Ephesus. And so we're going to spend a few weeks going through, probably a few months, going through and looking at what the Holy Spirit had to say through Paul to us as his church today. Amen? All right, history lesson? Never done that quite like that before. You learned some stuff? I love it, man. I love that stuff. I love looking at that. Y'all stand up on your feet with me this morning. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up as we close. And, and uh, guys, I just want you to just take a moment. Just close your eyes for a minute. I know, I know this was a little bit more of a history lesson than anything else. But again, I want you to look at the similarities. I want you to look at the similarities between the culture of Ephesus back then and the culture of the land in which we live today. I want you to think about the sin. I want you to think about the distractions in the city of Ephesus. It's no different than today, guys. We're distracted every which direction. Many times, the Lord is the last one we look to. But it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. You're never too far gone. The Lord loves you. It doesn't matter what you've done. 
Guys, the church in Ephesus, I guarantee you, it was full of temple prostitutes, sorcerers, people who performed witchcraft, all kinds of things. It's God and his mercy and grace sent Jesus to die for them. But here's the deal. They were willing to bow their knee and recognize they they were totally bankrupt without Jesus. They were willing to burn their books and their idols and all those things that were contrary to God's word and say, I am all in from this point on. Actually, y'all look at me for a minute. I'm going to give you a little more history here for a second. The city of Ephesus, there's quite a bit of ruins because they had to move it. Sometimes they would move it a quarter or half a mile. They'd move the city because disease would break out. How many of you know back then, diseases would wreak havoc on, uh, I'm not talking about what we're going through in the world right now. I'm talking about seriously, two-thirds, three-quarters of a city being wiped out in, in, in just months. So the problem they had was they had a hard time getting clean drinking water. And so disease would spread real easily. That's, that's part of the reason they drank so much wine, because it didn't generally go bad. Water went bad. They, couldn't, they, they had a hard time storing it. They had cisterns and stuff. It's still only so long. If you go back and look at it, and something I learned when we were actually there, when disease would break out and get bad enough, those who were wealthy would get up and they would move. And they would move down the road about a quarter mile, and they would start building down there. They'd build a big old suburb, right? And they would leave everybody else back behind to die. They had found all kinds of inscriptions about a group of people that refused to leave the city behind. It was the Church of Jesus. They have found stories in these writings that they've uncovered of followers of Jesus that stayed behind in areas that were just racked with disease. And many of the Christians stayed behind. Some of them died. They died of disease. But they stayed because they loved their Heavenly Father and they loved their neighbors. So they refused to get up and take off just because the disease was killing them. They decided, you know what? They need Jesus more than ever. And so they stayed. That, my friends, is being all in. The disease, it's killing everybody. You say, you know what? They need Jesus more than I need to live. So I'm going to stay here and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be Jesus to them. <laughs> Let's bow our heads. Two questions. Number one, guys, if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't bowed your, your knee to him, you may have prayed a prayer at some point in your life before, but you, guys, you know whether or not you have truly repented turning from your old life. You know who it is that your heart truly serves. Is it you? Are you living to serve yourself or are you living to please him? That's what it's about, guys. Confessing Jesus is Lord, anybody can do that in word. Is your heart confessing Jesus is Lord? Is your heart saying that Jesus is the master and ruler of my life and I will follow him all my days? You may be here and you have never, you've never called on Jesus to be saved. Or you may be here and you may have done it 25 times in your life. You may have been in church every day since you came out the womb. But you realize that you have never truly bowed your heart to Jesus. And that's you. 
every head bowed, I want you to, I want you to raise your hand. If, if you're here and you would say, that's me, I need to bow my knee to Jesus today. Anybody in this place say, I need to bow my knee to Jesus today? Holy Spirit, working who you need to work in. If you're watching online, you may be out there and you totally recognize you're living for yourself. Listen. I'm going to tell you this simply. The Bible says you repent. You turn from your way of living and you're, you're, you're going to say, Jesus, I'm going to live for you from this day forward. And then you make him Lord. <laughs> That's really what that is. You make him Lord of your life and you choose to serve him and his will from this day forward. And the Bible says that when you do that, you become a new creation. The old things are passed away. All things become new. No, all your problems in this life don't disappear. But you've got the heavenly father walking with you and he can take care of he'll do the heavy lifting he'll take care of those issues as you encounter them in this life and if you begin to stumble you'll find that your hand is in his and he won't let you fall he'll be there to encourage you to challenge you to push you he'll be the greatest the greatest dad the greatest coach you ever had in this life He'll be there in the darkest moments you'll experience in his life to say, I'm with you. We've got this. We're going to pray a prayer together. You can pray. You can pray after me. You can say it in your own words. It doesn't matter because it's not about the words. It's about the position of your heart. If you mean it with all your heart, everything changes in this moment. Just say, Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus. I recognize that without him, I'm utterly lost and alone. I am so bankrupt. I have a debt I can never repay. But Jesus did. He paid it for me. He took my judgment that I deserved and he called it his very own. He took my sin and my shame, my guilt and my sickness and disease. He took it upon himself and took it to the grave willingly because of his love for me. So Jesus, I ask you to be the Lord of my life. Be my master. Be my Lord. I repent of my old way of living. I give it up. I lay it at your feet. Be my master. From this day forward, I'm going to follow you in your way, in your will. I'm going to let you do things through me I could never have imagined. Holy Spirit, fill me now. Empower me to be everything that you've called me to be and to do everything that you've called me to do. I'll serve you all the days of my life from this day forward in Jesus' name. If you'd like to get more information about resources from Church of the Harvest, please check out our website at midsouthharvest.org. You may also contact us by phone at 662-890-1573 or toll free at 866-383-8277.